It was a dark and stormy night, and the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine, much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing... A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with... Vincent Price. Like, everything about Vincent Price. And as the fire died down, Nikki would conclude the evening... With something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Do you like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old-timey axe murder story. Then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at queensofthedamnedpodcast.wordpress.com, qotdpodcast.podbean.com, or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! This is Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances and Rev 96. This is Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly, Hillbilly Horror, Horror Stories. Stories. Do, Do we have, have a special, special treat for you? By now, you know that we are doing a live episode in Atchison, Kansas on August 10th. Atchison is home to the infamous Sally House. Atchison is one of the most haunted towns in America. So with the help of Maria Miller, we have an entire weekend in store for you. This is Maria Miller, Tourism Director for Atchison, Kansas. We're excited to welcome all of your listeners to the most haunted town in Kansas and one of the most haunted towns in the country, Atchison, where history repeats itself every single day in the most unusual of ways. You better get your tickets now because we have lots of exciting events planned for you. Besides our live show at Paolucci Restaurant, which is one of the most haunted restaurants in America, there will be haunted trolley rides, cemetery tours, tours of the Sally House, and even an investigation of the Sally House, if you're not too scared. Wow, it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, but it does. Our shows are giving away an amazing prize pack for this show. Two tickets to the live show, a shirt from each one of our shows, and a biggie. The winner and a friend will spend the night in the Sally House Friday, August 9th, with Tracy, Justin, and myself. Everyone can enter to win. Go to our Facebook pages. We have posted a Facebook cover photo. Just make this cover photo your cover photo and send us a message letting us know that you did it. Leave it up for two weeks, and on March 16th, we're going to choose our winner by computer random number selector. Make sure you message us and let us know, because otherwise we won't know you did it. You can get your tickets for all of the Atchison events at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. See you in Kansas. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. It has been a minute, so give me a few minutes here to wrap some stuff up before we get into this episode. Uh, I know everybody's eager to listen to it, as I was eager to get the fucking thing done. All right. So... I'm not going to read reviews after this episode, probably going to do it after the next one. I have a shitload of reviews to read, let alone three one-star reviews, which I know my regular listeners are going to get a kick out of that. They like that shit, so um, there's that. So if you want your review read, 
you know, submit a review and it'll be read at the end of the next episode. Secondly, uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Mysterious Circumstances is where you can find my stuff. I totally rearranged my tiers. Uh, I did finally get out Ketty Murders Part 2, which was extremely interesting. I got some audio that I put in there that I don't think has been on any other podcast before, but I will be doing those a lot more regularly now. Uh, next up, I gotta give a couple shout outs here, uh, for my friend Tyler from California. And the first one being, uh, 101 North Brewery in, uh, Petaluma, California, which I got some beer from there and holy shit, it is, it is amazing. So if you're in that area, stop by 101 North Brewery, some of the most amazing beer out there. Uh, another one is Fanino's Godfathers of Sauced in Petaluma, California, and that is uh, like barbecue sauce and stuff like that, so I hope she wrote that right because it doesn't sound right, but <laughs> but anyway, yeah it's, yeah, it's like dry rub barbecue sauces and stuff like that, so check that out. You can find those online, you know, uh, like I said, 101northbrewery.com. And then uh, another one, too, is my friend Tyler is actually, uh, she does events. She is an event coordinator, like a wedding coordinator. So if you're in that area and you want some events done, hit up Tyler at eventsbytyler.com. Check her out for sure. And then uh, last but certainly not least, if you can, give One of a Kind Buds on Instagram a quick follow. Uh, you can find them at Curiosity Shop Cannabis on Instagram. Uh, and speaking of which, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, you can either go to my personal account at burnitall13 because I like fire, or you can follow the podcast at Mysterious Podcast. Stop by the Facebook page, Mysterious Circumstances. Give it a like. Give it a follow. I'm always posting random shit on there. Not even gonna lie. Seriously, random stuff. Twitter, at PodcastMC. You can follow me on there. Again, I post a lot of random shit. You know, I don't take social media very seriously sometimes. So, <laughs> actually, it's like most of the time. I literally posted... Uh, a relationship update the other day on Facebook just to say how much I love Big Macs. I mean, that's that's the kind of shit that I do. I'm It's fucking stupid, but whatever. Uh, let me see other social media. Oh, yeah, the Facebook group, MC Nation. Type that into your search bar, hit the group button, join the group. I will tell you this right now. The admins will not let you in if you do not answer the questions. If you don't answer the questions within two weeks... You, your shit will be deleted and you'll have to try to join again. That's just the way it is. Uh, another thing is, too, uh, regarding the uh, contest that me and Jerry are running for the Atchison, Kansas show. Dude, it's it's pretty legit. Like, you have a chance to stay in the house with me, Jerry, Tracy, the queen bee of MC, the admin of my Facebook group, Lisa. We're all going to be there. We're giving away the two free tickets, the the two of you get to stay the night for free there with us, which is a pretty good fucking deal because it's expensive. And you get some shirts, you know, rewind it, listen to the promo again at the beginning, and you'll be good to go. Blood and Dust Wild West True Crime Podcast has booted off. Uh, it uh, We will be dropping our first episode on the 15th. We uh, actually dropped our introduction episode already, so if you want to, go ahead and subscribe. It is called Blood and Dust Wild West True Crime. It is nothing but 
cowboys and outlaws and you know uh, lawmen all that good stuff you know if you like the doc holiday and the jesse james episodes it's going to be like that except i have a couple co-hosts with me to help out so you know it uh it's it's going to be pretty awesome actually so you know if you have a chance get on that i'm pretty sure i haven't forgot anything you know it's hard telling I I haven't put out an episode for a while, so I appreciate you taking the few minutes to, to hear me out. So, without further ado, crack open a cold one. Let's get down to business. On May 22nd, 1933, John Dillinger was released from Indiana State Prison after serving nine and a half years for a failed robbery attempt which was his first offense. While in prison, John Dillinger became bitter and angry, but he also earned him a doctorate in bank robbery. Within the next six months, John Dillinger was responsible for more than a dozen bank robberies pulled off with military precision and covering three states, amassing more than $3 million in today's money. He would taunt the police, he would call them on the phone, and say things like, I bet you wish you knew where I was right now. And he would send them postcards, saying, I wish you were here. But the police were always one step behind. He would walk into banks, and he would not rob the people. He would rob the banks. And at a time, in the height of the Great Depression, the banks were the evil ones. So he was seen as a folk hero. And he ended up a legend. The people rooted for him to get away. Anybody that was ever in a bank while it was being robbed by the Dillinger gang, or even taken hostage by him for that matter, described him as the most polite man they'd ever come across, always tipping his hat, making them feel comfortable, and joking with them. The people loved him. But the banks and the police absolutely hated him because they just couldn't catch him. So you think you know about John Dillinger? You're about to find out a little bit more. My name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to The Life and Crimes of John Dillinger, Part 1. Dillinger was on the cover of every newspaper in America. He was in newsreels, movies, books, magazines. While Dillinger was, in retrospect, you'd have to say a very talented and professional bank robber, what really made his legend uh, were his escapes from jails. What forces molded a simple farm boy into the first public enemy number one? In a brief career which lasted only 15 months, Dillinger was arguably the most notorious criminal of this century. A man both hunted and celebrated, a hero and a villain. The depression had brought poverty to millions of Americans. The gangster genre emerges not coincidentally with the first full year of the Great Depression, 1930. And a lot of people see the gangster figure as being sort of a twisted version of the American success ethic. In all his bank robberies, almost everyone said he was the coolest guy they ever saw. They called him Jackrabbit because some of those cages were six, seven feet high, and he just would vault over them. He was handsome, really funny. He would tip his hat at people. He would joke with them. He was a very social, very charming guy. In the midst of America's Great Depression, banks were the focus of great public resentment. Dillinger was seen by the public as something of an avenger. Banks were foreclosing on small sharecroppers and farmers. People were being thrown out of their homes 
uh, where they'd lived for many years. He had a reputation for giving money to the needy people, people, uh, farmers who couldn't pay their mortgages. This desperate public enemy now rises to fame as an underworld hero, arrogant, that expression in his eyes. So Dillinger escapes from Crown Point in the sheriff's car. People were happy to see him go, and they followed his exploits from then on. It was a daily thing in the paper looking for Dillinger. Newsreel companies reveled in the Dillinger story, interviewing many of his hostages. How did he act? Was he jolly? Yes. He sang part of the way. What did he sing? Little dog, get along, little dog, get along. The public was just amazed. What he'd really done was raised himself up then from being an ordinary criminal to someone who is a part of myth and legend. People were looking for a hero in those days, and this guy provided it. He never stole from any people. He stole from the banks. And, of course, that was a symbol of authority to a lot of people who didn't have money in the banks and wish they did. He was by no means a psychopath. He avoided hurting people. I would say he was crooked but not twisted. The truth of the matter was he was a, he was a cop killer and a bank robber. He was not a hero. The newspapers had a real dilemma dealing with Dillinger. Just the term daring daylight bank robbery betrayed a certain respect for somebody who could get away with what Dillinger was getting away with. The FBI couldn't catch him. They couldn't keep up with the guy. Here's one, one little guy uh, getting away with all of this stuff and thumbing his nose at the U.S. government and uh, doing it with style. In my opinion, John Dillinger was the rock star of gangsters. Alright, so don't act like you guys don't know the routine. Let me open this beer right quick. Let's get this ball rolling. John Herbert Dillinger was born June 22, 1903 in the Oak Hill section of Indianapolis, Indiana. His parents were John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Lancaster. She went as Molly. He had an older sister who was born in 1889. Her name was Audrey. Uh, he grew up in a pretty middle-class family. His dad owned a grocery store and a couple rental properties. Uh, his dad was very harsh with discipline, though. He, even in an interview with, uh, you know, the news people after, after John Dillinger got extremely famous, he was quoted as saying he was a firm believer in the spare the rod, spoil the child mentality. But it wasn't so much that that really kind of messed with John. He was very passive aggressive. Like he would, he would kick John's ass when he was a kid, but then afterward he would go give him money for candy. You know, he would let him do whatever he wanted. Uh, he would get in trouble for certain things and not get in trouble for other things. He would lock him in his house, you know, if he was being bad. But then other times he would just let him roam the streets, you know, at whatever time of the night when he's like fucking six, nine, ten years old. So it really kind of, uh, kind of messed with John. He didn't know what he'd get in trouble for and what he wouldn't growing up. So. Growing up, he was very fascinated with stories of Frank and Jesse James. Uh, he particularly admired Jesse's courage and his kindness towards women and children. He really, really did look up to him quite a bit because of those factors. Now, on February 1st, 1907, when John Dillinger is about three and a half years old, uh, his mom, who's 36 at the time, dies of a stroke. Now, his sister gets married uh, right around in that same six-month time frame. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of false claims that his sister raised him. 
you know, she had a big family. She was already married by that time. Uh, and she did love him, but she didn't have time to raise John. She had kids of her own. She had a family of her own. So he did stay there a lot, but dad did raise him with a nanny until he remarried. Uh, he would hang around dad's grocery store during this time. He eventually worked in the grocery store, but he would get caught by dad giving kids free candy. And there's actually a story of uh, where his dad caught him giving a free pack of chewing gum to a girl. And uh, John Sr. grabbed him, grabbed the gum from the girl, backhanded the shit out of little John Dillinger and pretty much knocked him to the ground. You know, and, and that was, you know, his discipline for trying to give away free shit in his store, you know. So in 1912, his father does remarry and he remarries a woman named Elizabeth Fields and she is known as Lizzie. And they have uh, three more kids. Uh, Hubert is born in 1914. Doris is born in 1918, and Francis is born in 1922. Now, John originally did not like his stepmom at all. He really didn't even consider his siblings like real family members, you know. So there was a little bit of friction going on there. Uh, in school, his teachers said, you know, would always describe him as, as having a very alert mind. He enjoyed reading. He had above average uh, ability in reading and writing. And it's right around this age, you know, 10, 11, 12, where he starts getting into trouble. Uh, he's just very quick-witted. He has leadership skills, and his dad even said that he had a lot of leadership skills because he would always have some sort of influence over the other boys, you know, that he was friends with and in school and stuff like that. And I, I found a couple quotes from uh, his teachers, and, and one of his teachers said, quote, other boys, you know, had stolen change from my desk, but John, although he had ample opportunity to do so, never touched a cent, end quote. Another teacher went on and was quoted as saying uh, how polite he was. She said, quote, one thing about him I'll never forget, he always tipped his hat to me, end quote. And I thought those were pretty cool little things to put in there, you know, especially when we're talking about his early life and his formative years. Uh, the following year in 1913, he gets in trouble with the law for the very first time. He is caught stealing coal from a train, selling it to the farmers. Now, the family friend who apparently owned the the coal or whatnot uh, took him to juvenile court. His dad pretty much said, you know, I've done everything I can do with the kid, just take him to court, whatever. So there wasn't really any resistance there from John Sr. You know, he was, uh, but when he walks into court, this is a pretty interesting story, when he walks into court, uh, he's wearing his hat crooked, he's chewing gum, you know, and he's kind of standing there just real cocky. And the judge told him to take off his hat and spit out his gum, and John's reply was to take the gum out of his mouth, stick it on his hat, and just stare at the judge. So the judge, like, is so pissed off that he ends up screaming at John, your mind is crippled. And that's a direct quote. Your mind is crippled, boy. It's because he just had, you know, he was kind of fucked up with authority, obviously. You know what I mean? So in 1916, at the age of 13, he starts having an affair with his stepmom. That lasts about three years. All bullshit aside, apparently they ended up getting, you know, over their differences but in all reality you guys 
Like, let's think about this for one second. I'm going to reference the Jesse James and Doc Holliday episodes. At least he was not fucking his first cousin. All right. So as odd as this is, I'm actually kind of okay with it. Okay. Like it's kind of fucked up on her behalf. You know what I mean? Cause he's only 13 years old and it's your husband's kid. But at the same time, he's not fucking a blood relative. Okay. So he's st- right about that time too. When he's 13, he starts this gang and they're called the dirty dozen. Right. And they're getting in trouble for fighting and petty thefts and pranks. And John gets a reputation. He's known for bullying the younger kids. And it's really weird because you hear two different sides of descriptions of him. Um, for the most part, he's described as being polite, a good kid, just a normal boy who, you know, raised a little bit of hell when he was younger and growing up, and it was nothing out of the ordinary. But others also described him as being de- a delinquent, uh, violent. Uh, but a lot of the negative narrative towards John reflecting back to his younger years actually came in later years, like after the fact. You know what I mean? So it's kind of weird how that all works with when you're dealing with uh, how somebody's personality was when they were younger, especially after doing the shit that John Dillinger did. So he's kind of bored at this point in time. So 1919, at the age of 16, he drops out of school. Uh, Like I said, he's bored. He wants to start making his own money. He wants his own life. And he gets a job working in a machine shop. At first, he was working a couple odd jobs. But he found this machine shop, and he ended up being very, very good with his hands. He was a very good employee. He understood how the machines worked. Uh, he He was doing really good. He stopped getting in trouble. He calmed down quite a bit. But... His dad, who didn't like his career choice, wanted him to go back to school, and and John Dillinger just kept refusing. He's like, no, he's like, I like what I'm doing, I'm not going back to school, like I'm finally happy, you know, just leave me the fuck alone about it. So his dad kind of gets this idea in his head that Indianapolis is corrupting his son, okay? Even though, looking back at it, This is the first time he's actually been calm and actually holding a job, you know, and don't get me wrong, he's, you know, he's still a little bit of a wild child, but he's not doing dumb shit anymore, okay? So right around 1920, 1921, dad decides to sell the grocery store and his properties and move the family to Mooresville, which is a little bit southwest uh, of Indianapolis, and he gets a 60-acre farm, and he's just going to make sure, you know, everything's going to be a quiet life, he's going to keep his kid out of trouble, this and that. Even though John Dillinger did move with him, he still fucking refused to quit his job. He fucking liked what he was doing, right? So he had this little tiny motorcycle, and what he would do was he would ride 18 fucking miles each way to work, and he would work 10-hour days. He was bored as shit in the country, okay? So, like, he would wake up, he would ride his little motorcycle 18 miles, he'd work 10 hours, and then he'd ride that damn thing back. Like I said, there's nothing else really to do there, okay? So he starts going out to pool halls and in Mooresville and neighboring town called Martinsville. Yeah, he's out late, you know, he's not coming home, he's out drinking and fighting and, you know, visiting prostitutes every now and then. So he's out just blowing off steam and shit. Well, he starts dating this uh, this girl named Frances Thornton, who's 17 at the time. Well, as it turns out, Frances Thornton 
is the stepdaughter of Everett Dillinger, who is his uncle. And it's okay, you guys. It's not blood relation cousin, okay? There's no blood relation in there. Still a little awkward, but there's no blood relation, okay? But his uncle still did not approve. He's like, no, fuck no, man. This is going to be too weird. So he pretty much orders Francis to stop seeing him. And John Dillinger becomes extremely bitter. And he's pretty much heartbroken. Like, he really he really liked her quite a bit. So shortly after this, on July 21st, 1923, John Dillinger steals the car of a guy named Oliver Macy in Mooresville while Oliver Macy was attending church, okay? Now, this is the same church, ironically enough, that his dad was a deacon at, all right? So... John Dillinger steals the car and he goes joyriding through Indianapolis. Now, at around midnight, he's caught by a cop walking the streets just randomly. You know, and back then, you know, around midnight, there's not that many people out and about, okay? So the cop questions him, and John Dillinger is just kind of like giving him these stupid-ass excuses, and the cop's not very cool with it. So he's he's like, well, how, how the hell did you even get here? So John's like, well, I drove in. He's and he's like, well, take me to your car. And they go to the go to the car, and within you know a few minutes, the cop realizes that the fucking car is stolen. Pretty much, what happens is he is he goes to put John Dillinger under arrest. Now, supposedly, you know, he punches the cop and he breaks loose and he takes off running. He realizes John Dillinger realizes that this is a pretty it's a pretty serious crime. You know, stealing a car auto theft even in this time period in the early 1920s so he's scared he's really really scared now oliver macy uh, and his wife they actually refused to press charges against john dillinger no he's just a young kid just boys being boys so they wouldn't even press charges against him but john didn't know that okay so he's like panicking as shit and he knows and he thought that he couldn't go back home because if he did he was going to get arrested so the very next day he goes and signs up for the u.s navy he ends up becoming a petty officer third class i did read somewhere else that said he uh he was a fireman third class but i'm not 100 percent. i only saw that in one place so for the most part everybody says he was a petty officer third class uh, and he's assigned to the uss utah and what he is is he's a machinery repairman and uh, just for the record, a uh, cool little fact about the USS Utah is that it was sunk uh, at the attack of Pearl Harbor in 1941. So that's a pretty little interesting side fact for you there. Now, given John's problem with authority, you know, we all know he's got a little bit of a problem with it by now. On December 4th, 1923, while the ship is docked in Boston, John Dillinger goes AWOL. He ends up going back to Mooresville, Indiana with a $50 reward on his head as a deserter. He ends up getting court-martialed, and eventually he is dishonorably discharged by the U.S. Navy. Now, while he's back in Mooresville, uh, he meets a 16-year-old girl by the name of Beryl Hovius. That's fucking one of the worst names ever. I just had to state that opinion right there. But, uh... 
So on April 12th, 1924, he gets married and he tries to settle down, but he can't find a job. Like there's no jobs to be had. So he has no income. So him and Beryl, his new wife, have to move into his dad's farmhouse. You know, they're in this cramped little room. And to be honest with you, like, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with old farmhouses in the Midwest, particularly like the old, old style ones and, you know, small farming communities. I could not even imagine this dude trying to get fucking laid in this house. Like, because everything would be creaking. It would have been, you know, horrible. I mean, I feel like I know John Dillinger now, so I really honestly think that he would just pound away anyway, like he wouldn't give a fuck, but you never know, because at this point he could probably kick his dad's ass, you know what I mean, if he tried to like push him around. But anyway, that's just a little side theory there. So, uh, a few weeks after moving into his dad's house, he gets caught stealing a bunch of chickens. Uh, His father worked out a deal to keep the case out of court. You know, his relationship with his father is getting a lot worse. You know, it's it's never getting better in any of these circumstances, right? So, basically, him and his wife move out, and they move into Martinsville, which is just south of Mooresville, uh, into her parents' house. And he starts working a job at an upholstery shop. And he's actually really, really good at this because he's very good with his hands, okay? And he's working as a seamster, you know? So, in a little bit, a few months later, uh, the summer of 1924, he starts playing shortstop for the Martinsville baseball team, and he meets a guy named Edgar Singleton, who is a hard drinker, he's a distant relative of his stepmom Lizzie, and he is also a little bit of an ex-con, he had done prison time for armed robbery, and they're out at the pool hall one night celebrating their first game, you know, because they had all played good, and just for the record, John Dillinger was a fucking amazing baseball player there are a lot of people that said he was good enough like if he would have stuck with that you know there's a good chance he could have made it to the major leagues because he was just that good with his hands he was just really really good he's extremely athletic too extremely athletic so while he's at this pool hall celebrating the first game with edgar singleton um he invites him out back to hit some corn whiskey, you know, a little bit of moonshine, and gets John drunk. And this is when they start planning their first robbery, all right? Uh, Ed Singleton has pretty much cased out this uh, local grocery store, and he starts telling John about uh, a guy named Frank Morgan, who's a local grocer, who used to go to the barber shop before taking money to the bank after work every single day, all right? So... Singleton tells Dillinger that, you know, they could easily rob this old guy because he was 68 years old. They hatched this plan to where John's going to rob the grocer and Singleton's going to be waiting for him in a getaway car down the street. And it, it sounds like a great, you know, plan because John's over here working his ass off for pennies on the dollar. You know, there's no other jobs available. So he's pretty much taking whatever the fuck he can get right now. So, on September 6th, 1924, at 10 o'clock at night, John Dillinger, who's armed with a 32 caliber pistol and a large machining bolt wrapped in a handkerchief. Now, what, what he did was he took this huge machining bolt, you know, probably about the size of a small fist, and he tied it in a knot at the end of a handkerchief, and you could just swing it around, literally just knock people out with this thing all day, right? So... 
he's hiding behind the stairs of the Mooresville Christian Church, and he came up behind Frank Morgan uh, and clubbed him over the head with this bolt and tried to steal 50 bucks off of him, which in today's money would have been about $724. And it was totally unsuccessful because Frank Morgan didn't get knocked out. He fucking turned around and started fighting John Dillinger, right? So he grabs Dillinger, and like I said, they start fighting. And Dillinger goes to pull his gun out. The Frank Morgan, like, knocks the gun out of his hand, and the gun hits the ground and goes off and fires. And all of a sudden, the grocer, the grocer, Frank Morgan, starts yelling for, for help. So John Dillinger thought that he had shot him. He thought that when the gun fired, that it actually shot Frank Morgan. So he starts fucking freaking out, right? And he goes and takes off running. And he goes down the street to meet uh, Edgar Singleton in the getaway car. Well, when Singleton heard the gunshot, he thought that John Dillinger actually shot the dude. So he fucking took off. So John Dillinger's just like, what the fuck, man? So like, there's nobody there, okay? So Dillinger ends up going back to the pool hall that they were at to look for Singleton. And what he does is he starts asking, you know, patrons in the pool hall if Morgan is okay. You know, hey, hey, you know, uh, is Frank Morgan okay? I heard, uh, you know, heard he might have gotten shot. Um, and Frank Morgan was fine. He had 11 stitches in his fucking head, but that was about it. But the thing about it was, is he pretty much gave himself away. Like, nobody had known that the robbery had happened yet. You know, let alone the fact that, um, you, you know, a local preacher by the church had seen John Dillinger and obviously recognized him because his dad was a deacon. What happens is, is the sheriff ends up taking Frank Morgan to Dillinger's farm the next morning to identify John Dillinger. And Frank Morgan shows up and he honestly doesn't believe that John, John did it. He's like, I know, he says, quote, I know Johnny, he's a good kid. And he looks at Dillinger and he says, uh, you wouldn't do that, would you, John? And at this point, like John Dillinger breaks down and starts crying and totally confesses and he apologizes and, you know, he's arrested on the spot, right? So John Dillinger Sr., John Sr., he, he goes to the prosecutor, a guy named Omar O'Hara, and he works out a deal, like a plea deal. And part of the deal is that Dillinger would confess and plead guilty with no lawyer and he would testify as a witness for the prosecution against Singleton. And the court would be lenient because this is his first offense. So the prosecutor and John's dad have this whole deal worked out. And John's kind of sketchy about it. He's like, man, I don't know. He's like, I don't want to show up without a lawyer, you know. So, like I said, he's a little bit sketchy about it. But his dad convinces him. His dad's like, listen, just do this. It's it. He's like, you'll get out in a couple years. It's your first offense. You know, we worked out this deal or whatever. So reluctantly, John goes into court, and on September 16th, 1924, at the age of 21, John shows up into court with no lawyer, and his dad isn't there either. And the judge doesn't even give a shit, okay? He makes an example of John Dillinger, and he sentenced him to, to concurrent charges one of which being 2 to 14 years for conspiracy to commit a felony, and the other one being 10 to 20 years for assault and battery with intent to rob. The trial only lasted five minutes, 
This was John Dillinger's first conviction, and he is sentenced with no legal representation, no public defender, no nothing. John Dillinger is in shock, okay, because he was told about this. He's like, this, what what the hell is going on? So he's literally looking at 20 years in prison, you know, more than likely a minimum of 10 at the very least, all right? So... They end up taking him to Morgan County Jail, and he's sitting in the cell, and he's just pissed off. He's confused. You know, he was supposed to have this plea deal. You know, his father promised him to take this deal, that it was going to be good, you know, and he'd be out on bail in a few hours, you know, and then he'd have to report to jail and probably do like a couple years. So Dillinger ends up getting sent to the Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton, Indiana, and when he got there, he told a guard, quote, if Singleton receives a lesser sentence, I will be the meanest son of a bitch anyone had ever seen, end quote. He was pissed, right? And this is while he's being carried back and forth to uh, the Morgan County Jail to testify at Singleton's trial. And while he's being transported, at one point he does try to escape. He's with Deputy Russell Peterson, and they stop at this restaurant, and uh, he... Out of good faith, he offers John Dillinger, you know, a refreshing soft drink, you know, at this little restaurant. So while they're in there, John Dillinger tips the fucking table over, takes off running out the door. Deputy Peterson pulls out a twenty-five caliber pistol, fires a warning shot. John Dillinger ends up running down a dead-end alley and pretty much gave up. He knew he couldn't do shit. So uh, Singleton, who had a prison record, okay, he had... Like I said, he had been charged with armed robbery. He had actually done six years in prison for that armed robbery. He was also caught. Now, he heard about John Dillinger's sentence, so he hurries up and lawyers up. He gets a lawyer, and he requests a uh, a new judge and a change of venue. And when he gets that lawyer, he pleads guilty, and he is sentenced to 2 to 14 years. Now, he ended up serving less than two years of prison time. And this is him being an ex-con who served six years for armed robbery and literally planned the entire robbery that John Dillinger was involved in. So let me tell you something about Bitter. I'd be a little bit pissed off right now, too. And if you were in that situation, you cannot even tell me any different. Alright, so while he's in prison, John is trying to make the best of it. Don't get me wrong, he's, he's getting angry and bitter in here, okay? But he's playing on the prison baseball team, and he starts working in the shirt factory as a, as a like I said, a seamster, because he had prior uh, experience doing this. He would often complete twice his quota in the prison factory because he was so good with his hands and so fast. And uh, he would secretly help fill out a lot of the other prisoners' quotas, which made him a lot of friends in prison, okay? Now, like I said, he's he's extremely pissed about his sentence because I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah, he did wrong, but he literally got fucked over here, okay? You know, upon his physical examination into prison, uh, it should be known he had gonorrhea. And, but while he's in there, he befriends some other criminals. Uh, these guys are seasoned bank robbers by the names of Harry Pete Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter. Now, all these guys taught Dillinger how to be a successful criminal, right? Now, the men planned heists that they would commit after they were released, after they all got out of prison. Now, 
Dillinger's wife and family did visit him a lot, okay? His father and uh, stepmother actually launched a campaign to have him released, and uh, they were able to get 189 signatures on a petition to get him a reduced sentence and get him out of there because, uh, you know, basically he got fucked over pretty bad, right? So, uh, you know, he often wrote letters to his wife. Uh, one of the excerpts from one of them is, uh, quote, Dearest, we will be so happy when I can come home to you and chase your sorrows away. For, sweetheart, I love you. So all I want is to just be with you and make you happy. Write soon and come sooner. End quote. You know, Beryl was handling it pretty rough. She was a young girl. You know, they hadn't been married that long. You know, she's got a husband who she doesn't even know is going to be out of prison in the next 20 years, right? So on April 25th, 1929, Beryl files for divorce, uh, and that was unbeknownst to John. And on June 20th, 1929, two days before his birthday, she sends a letter to the prison. She doesn't even send a letter to him. She sends it to the fucking prison for one of the guards to deliver it to him. And it was basically stating that she had obtained a divorce and that the divorce was final. He was fucking devastated, okay? He was already had gotten fucked over so much, and this literally just broke his fucking heart. And he later admitted that it really did affect him personally. Now, Dillinger again was fucked over when he was denied parole. Now he's even getting more angry. He's getting more bitter about the denial of parole. Uh, you know, his wife divorcing him. And he starts becoming a pretty bad prisoner. He tries to escape a few times. He quits the baseball team because he's depressed. And that was literally like the one thing that he loved. You know, that's one thing that he had is his escape was playing baseball and he just quit. And what he does is he asks to be sent to the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, Indiana. Now, this is a maximum security prison, right? This is a lot tougher. Now, Dillinger told the prison officials that it had a better baseball team. And that that's why he wanted to go there. He's like, well, they got a better baseball team, you know, so I kind of want to go there and hang out and play ba baseball with these dudes. In all reality, the truth of the matter is that he wanted to join Pierpont and Van Meter. They had been transferred there previously, and those were like the only close friends that he had on the inside. So, you know, that's pretty much how that went down. Now, on July 16th, 1929... He gets his transfer to the Indiana State Prison, and it's it's a lot harder in there. It's a lot more. There's a lot more discipline, and, you know, he's kind of surprised to see, like, a lot of older guys like his father's age who are doing, like, life sentences in prison because these were hardened criminals. These were murderers. These were rapists. This wasn't the reformatory, you know, back in Indianapolis or in Pendleton, I should say. So he becomes, like, really, really depressed and withdrawn. He ended up not joining the baseball team, and he just buries himself in his work at the prison shirt factory, and again, he starts producing double his quota to help other inmates out, and that again starts earning him a lot of friends, okay? It's during his time in uh, the state prison that Dillinger starts learning how to be a criminal. You know, he starts learning from seasoned bank robbers like Pierpont Van Meter. He became friends with a guy named Walter Dietrich, who had worked with uh, another guy who was a notorious bank robber by the name of, name of Herman Lamb. 
You know, he was, uh, Herman Lamb was a foreman German army officer. Um, he had emigrated to the United States in the late 1800s, but he was famous for planning bank robberies with military precision, okay? And Dietrich had studied the man's method well, and, uh, he was also a good teacher. So he was teaching John Dillinger how to investigate the layout of the banks, like all the entries and exits, windows, you know, locations of the nearest police station, just everything, every tiny little detail. Now, Pierpont and Van Meter, they had a lot longer sentences than John Dillinger did, but they were planning a big breakout. They were not planning on serving their full terms, so the, the whole time they're in there, they're already planning like all these bank robberies for when they eventually get out, right? What they do is they're planning on bribing some guards and shit, so they need money to finance this jailbreak, um, and they knew John Dillinger would be out a lot sooner than they would, right? So Pierpont and the other guys, they bring him into this plan of all these bank robberies that they're going to rob when they all get out. And then, um, you know, they all form like this little, this little group in prison. Okay. And they just let him in on the escape plans and all this shit. So Dillinger starts getting like a straight up crash course in the art of everything bank robbery, right? And they give them a list of stores, a list of banks to hold up, and contact information for the most reliable accomplices. And they also give him uh, guidance on where to uh, take all the stolen shit and money to clean it up or sell it or whatever the case might be. So on May 10th, 1933, at this point, Dillinger had been in the state penitentiary for almost four years. Uh, he was in about a total of nine, almost nine and a half uh, he was notified by his family that his stepmother was near death. According to prison records, the reason that him and his stepmother were so close is probably because, you know, he was he was banging her every now and then when he was a kid. But his stepmom, Lizzie, and this is according to prison records, worked harder than anybody to gain John's early release and parole. She wrote him more letters than anybody. She wrote letters to public officials. See, she visited him more than any other relative that John Dillinger had. And John loved her and thought of her as his only mother because his birth mother, Molly, did die when John was only like three and a half years old. You know, I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of think that he... Might have thought that way, but I also kind of think that he maybe he fucking harbored some some feelings for her and shit like that. So not exactly sure how that whole relationship still was, you know, even after he went to prison. But on May 22nd, 1933, after doing nine and a half years in prison, he was granted parole. But unfortunately, because the prison system misplaced his paperwork, he ended up arriving home just a couple of hours after she had died. Like, if they would have not misplaced his paperwork, he would have been able to actually make it home in time to say goodbye to her. But it did not turn out that way. You know, also on top of that, he's released during the height of the Great Depression. There's no fucking jobs available anywhere, okay? So he's got very few, very few options, all right? So he ends up, he decides that he's going to go back to crime. And he joins up with a few of Pierpont's men who are on the outside. I've seen two dates 
that are different on this bank robbery. I've seen June 10th. I've also seen June 21st, and both of them are 1933. But he robs his first bank, taking $10,600, which the is the equivalent of about $205,000 from the New Carlisle National Bank in New Carlisle, Ohio. Just a, a little while later, about a month later, on July 15th, 1933, on a Saturday, he arrives in Muncie, Indiana to meet Harry Copeland, who is one of Pierpont's men. Uh, then he drives to Daleville, Indiana to case out the Commercial Bank of Daleville. So on Monday, July 17th, 1933, at 12.45 p.m., they rob the Commercial Bank of Daleville, and it's him, Harry Copeland, and another guy named Hilton Crouch. They end up netting $3,500. In today's money, that would be $68,000. Now, it's really funny because the newspapers describe this robbery as like the most daring bank robbery in years and all this shit. In all reality, when they walked into the bank, there was one female teller. She gave up the money pretty fucking easily. There was not any resistance. There was nothing to, you know, make a big fuss about. But they, you know, blew it out of proportion a little bit. So after this, uh, this is right after the uh, the Indiana State Police formed, okay? And it's headed off by a guy named Leach. And they can't keep up with them. They are making the cops just look like just incompetent as fuck, okay? So, they're always showing up a few minutes too late. There's actually a story of where the cops show up and there's still a fucking cigarette burning on the sidewalk from from them being there that, that soon. So, what John Dillinger does is he starts calling him up. He starts calling up this leech dude and he's like, hey, you know, quote, hey, you stuttering bastard. I bet you'd like to know where I am right now. And he starts fucking sending him postcards from every town that he goes to saying, oh, I wish you were here. You know, just making him look like a total asshole, right? So, like, state police are just getting livid. And that's along with local police as well. So on Monday, July 30th, 1933... John Dillinger actually visits the 1933 World's Fair with a girl that he's dating named Mary Longacre, and uh, he shows up with one of Mary's friends as well. Uh, now, Mary Longacre is the sister of Jim Jenkins, who is a friend of John Dillinger's in Michigan City Prison. And the coolest thing about this whole deal is he's actually got a picture from being there with, with Mary Longacre, right? And he shows up there, and he literally... As a wanted man, as a wanted fugitive at this point, still, he walks up to a cop and literally has a cop take a picture of him and his girlfriend. Like, the balls on this guy, right? Just cool as fuck. Like, he was known as being just calm and collective no matter what the situation. Like, the dude had balls of steel, okay? So they end up getting this famous picture taken, and yes, you can look it up and find it. The smile on John Dillinger's face is the fucking greatest thing ever, like in this picture. So on August 4th, 1933, on a Friday, uh, he robs the first National Bank of Montpelier, Indiana, with Copeland and Crouch, and they net $6,700, which the equivalent today would be $130,000. And then just 10 days later... Um, on August 14th, 1933, at right about noon, Dillinger, Copeland, and Crouch robbed the Citizens National Bank in Bluffton, Ohio. 
uh, for about $6,000, which the equivalent today would be about $116,000. Now, while I was looking up this, uh, you know, doing research, because I look for a lot of old newspaper articles, because depending on what your source is, uh, you can get more accurate information on certain things, okay? So I found this really fucking cool article that was written in 2017. Uh, it was in the Seattle Times, and uh, it's... Basically, the, the Seattle Times interviewed this guy who was 90 at the time in 2017. His name was Ken Howenstein. Now, he was raised in Bluffton, Ohio, and uh, he says he remembers the day because he was there. Uh, Howenstein said he was seven or eight years old when Dillinger robbed the Bluffton Bank. He and a little buddy of his named Richard Basinger uh, were playing at the grade school playground and left, and they were walking up the street headed towards the bank when Howenstein said he glanced over at the alley of the bank and uh, saw a car parked with all the doors open and a man pacing while glancing at both ends of the alleyway. Howenstein and his friend continued walking down the sidewalk and looked over to see the gang robbing the bank. This is a direct quote. This is like one of the coolest things ever. He says, quote, I was sitting on the window of the old bank. John was in the bank, and he had a guy with a gun on the teller. The guy turned to me, pointing his gun, and then turned back, covering the teller. Evidently, John told him to leave me alone because I was just a child. I wasn't scared. I just crawled up on the windowsill and watched. I saw them stuffing money into little burlap bags until John was satisfied, end quote. And uh, after the gang was satisfied with their haul, they left the bank by out the back door, entered the car, and drove off down the alley and out of town. Um, I thought that was a really cool to actually have somebody who witnessed that shit, you know what I mean, even as a little kid. Right about this time now, as he's trying to remember, like, his buddies in prison, okay? Because they hooked him up with a lot of shit, but he's also doing these bank robberies to finance a breakout plan to get those guys out of prison. So, Dillinger pretty much helps conceive this plan to uh, get Pierpont, uh, Clark, and six other dudes he had met in prison, who I think a lot of the other guys worked in the prison laundry or whatever, um... He starts working with two female accomplices by the name of Pearl Elliott and Mary Kinder, uh, and they start forming this escape plan to get those dudes out of prison, okay? While this whole plan is rolling, uh, they're still robbing banks. On September 6, 1933, on a Wednesday, he robs the Massachusetts Avenue State Bank in Indianapolis with Copeland and Crouch, netting $24,000, and the equivalent today would be $464,000. On September 15th, 1933, right around uh, on September 22nd, 1933, Dillinger's got some time to kill. So he goes to visit his uh, girlfriend, Mary Longacre, in Dayton, Ohio. And like I said, he had met her early in the, earlier in the year. Uh, they were supposedly dating. Some say that she was just a lady friend, you know, but uh, he didn't realize that the police were tracking him. And they finally caught up to him in Dayton, Ohio. They received a tip from a landlady, uh, and the cops stormed into Mary's room and arrested Dillinger. I mean, he didn't even put up a fight. He, he gave up pretty easily. Now, the next day, he's transferred to the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. Now, a lot of people pronounce that too differently, okay? Lima, Lima. Uh, here in Indiana, we have a lot of uh, streets and roads by, uh, you know, L-I-M-A. We pronounce them Lima. I know in the military it's Lima, 
you know, whatever's whatever. But um, now he's going to be indicted in connection with the Bluffton, Ohio robbery. Now, while searching him before he gets into the prison, uh, the, the police discovered a document which appeared to be a prison escape plan. Now, they demanded that Dillinger tell them what the document meant and what it was all about. Dillinger totally refused. He wouldn't tell them shit, okay? So, he ends up being incarcerated at the Lima, Ohio jail under the care of Sheriff Jesse Sarber and his wife who lived at the jail building. There's also a deputy there as well. And on September 26th, 1933 at 1.30 p.m., Pierpont and his men escaped from Indiana State Prison with the help of John Dillinger. How this happened was Dillinger arranged for a shitload of guns to be packed in a box of thread and smuggled into the shirt factory. And that's how they get. They took the assistant warden as a hostage and they broke out. Now the group, which this first group would be known as the first uh, Dillinger gang, uh, were Pete Pierpont, Russell Clark, Charles Makeley, Ed Schaus, uh, Harry Copeland and John Hamilton, who is known as Red Hamilton, who's a seriously interesting guy, by the way. Seriously interesting. And uh, a member of the Herman uh, Lamb gang, uh, who was, uh, I believe, Walter Dietrich from, from earlier. I talked about him a little bit. So they go to the gang's hideout in Hamilton, Ohio. Now, the Lima Jail is is just a little over like 100 miles away from Pierpont's hideout, right? So he realized that all he needed was a little bit of cash and a few guns, and he could be able to repay the favor and get Dillinger out of jail. Now, this whole time, Dillinger is sitting in jail um, in a letter dated September 29th, 1933. Uh, he writes a letter to his father, and he, and he really confided in him. And he said, quote, I know I have been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I did too much time. For where I went in a carefree boy... I came out better toward everything in general. If I had gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this would never have happened, end quote. So, you know, he's kind of reflecting a little bit about his whole situation because this has been a whirlwind since he has gotten out of prison, okay? So on October 3rd, 1933, Pierpont Clark Makeley robbed the First National Bank in St. Mary's, Ohio. They're trying to fund the breakout of John Dillinger, right? So on October 12th, just nine days later, 1933, armed with pistols, three men approached the jailhouse just as J Sheriff Jesse Sarber and his wife were finishing dinner. Um, Ed Schaus, Copeland, Hamilton acted as lookouts. Pierpont knocked on the door and announced uh, they were officers from the state penitentiary. I've also read that they said they were from the state police, um, and they needed to extradite Dillinger. Now, Sarber asked them for their credentials, and they pulled out their guns after Pierpont stated, You want credentials? Here's our credentials. Now, Sarber reached for a gun, and Pierpont panicked, and this is very debatable. Um, panicked and shot him twice, once in the ab abdomen, and then the other two men pretty much just beat the hell out of him and mortally wounded him. Uh, the other half of the story is that Pierpont literally just point blank shot the dude in the head and then shot him in the stomach for good measure. Um, you know, it's, it's hard telling which one, you know, might be true. I didn't dig that deep because we had a whole bunch of other shit to talk about. But, uh, what they do is Miss Sarber at that time, it gave them the keys to the jail, and the three men locked up Mrs. Sarber and uh, also locked up Deputy Will Deputy Wilbur Sharp, 
and uh, they basically just left Jesse Sarber on the ground, left him for dead. Uh, they got Dillinger out. Um, Jesse Sarber was still alive for a few hours, and it is stated that when John Dillinger walked out of the jail and saw what they had done to Jesse Sarber, you know, the sheriff, you know, it stated that he looked up at the guys and said, said, why did you guys have to kill him? We didn't have to kill anybody. But this murder made all the guys in the gang accessories to murder under the law. Now, this is about the time where the federal government starts getting involved. And it's right around this area where um, they start doing like fingerprint technology and they start doing communication between different branches and different law enforcement agencies and stuff like that. But still at this point in time, the federal uh, government, which this is the predecessor to the FBI, okay, it's not technically the FBI yet, but it's the same concept, they can't even make arrests independently. Like, if they're going to be in town, they have to be in town with a local, uh, you know, local law enforcement, and if they're going to make an arrest, you know, it has to be with local law enforcement, stuff like that. Like, they can't operate independently. So, once Dillinger gets free, the gang decides to head to Chicago, and they decide to just build this fucking bank-robbing gang. And they want to be the most organized and the most deadly bank-robbing gang in the country. In order to pull off these big jobs that they all had planned and shit, okay, because they, all bullshit aside, they were good at what they did. They were very good at what they did. But Pierpont Dillinger knew that they needed some seriously heavy firepower. They needed ammunition, and they needed bulletproof vests. Now, in order to get this equipment, they had to rob something else. So on October 14, 1933, Dillinger, Pierpont, and Dietrich go to the police station in Auburn, Indiana, and they take one Thompson submachine gun, two thirty-eight revolvers, one thirty caliber Springfield rifle, one shotgun, one Colt forty-five pistol, one forty-four Smith and Wesson, a Spanish forty-five, a German Luger, three bulletproof vests, and twelve hundred and forty-five rounds of ammunition. Now, about a week later, literally seven days later, on October twenty-first, nineteen thirty-three, they rob another police station in Peru, Indiana. Now, after they case the joint out. Pierpont Dillinger entered the arsenal. They overpowered three guards, and they stole two Thompson submachine guns, two sawed-off shotguns, four thirty-eight police specials, two thirty-thirty Winchesters, and six bulletproof vests. Let that shit sink in for a minute. These dudes were not fucking around. So on October 23rd, just a couple days later, the gang takes all their new shit that they got, and they go rob the Central National Bank in Greencastle, Indiana for $75,000. In today's money, that's $1.5 million in one robbery. By the end of the year, uh, Makeley actually ended up fourth on Illinois, uh, the Illinois list of public enemies, and the only people in front of him were Dillinger, Pierpont, and Hamilton, which is a pretty cool little side fact, right? So... Right about now, okay, the gang starts getting a really big reputation. Like, the cops know about them, the feds know about them, people know about them. 
their prison escapes, you know, they had killed, uh, Sheriff Sarber, uh, the bank robberies, the attack, they fucking robbing police stations, you know, newspapers are writing all these fucking crazy ass stories about these dudes, right? One of the stories is, uh, that several gang members posed as alarm system sales reps to get into a bank vault and have access to the security system <laughs> in order to rob the bank, right? Another story is they pretended once to be a film crew scouting locations for a bank robbery movie. Now, while they were robbing the fucking bank, everybody who was standing around watching, they're watching the fucking bank being robbed, but they thought it was they were shooting a movie, so they're all just standing there, like, just being amused, right? Another one, another one of the stories is a, a farmer who had come to the bank to make a deposit while the gang was robbing the place. He was standing at the teller window with his money in front of him. Um, Dillinger asked the farmer if the money was his or if it was the bank's. The farmer answered it was his, and Dillinger told him, quote, keep it. We only steal from banks, end quote. Uh, he, has a, he had a reputation at this point by giving money to people in the bank because, uh, you know, at this point, you know, farms are getting closed on. Um, people are, there's, there was no money in the banks. Like the Great Depression is a whole huge thing, okay? But basically, like I've heard stories from my grandpa and, uh, my great aunt. And literally, you went to the bank one day and they didn't have your money. There was nothing. To this day, my great aunt still buries fucking money in her yard. The Great Depression was, was a fucked up situation. Above, like, all those, he's got, like, a Robin Hood type, you know, reputation at this point. Because the banks are the bad guys, you know. All the working men hated the fucking banks. So they're rooting, they're rooting for John Dillinger and these guys just to steal their fucking money like the banks stole their money. You know what I mean? So they're following their exploits just nonstop. Uh, he's also got a rep reputation at this point for being extremely loyal to his friends. Um, there's stories of him jumping over teller counters because he was so fucking athletic. Like, John Dillinger really didn't drink. He really didn't even smoke often either. And he was extremely athletic. He could jump like a motherfucker. His nickname was Jackrabbit because he was so fucking fast and he could jump like crazy. But he's also got a reputation for being extremely polite. He's in the banks joking around with the people, you know, as he's robbing the banks. You know, just random shit like that, right? So it's like he's building this whole persona. And the thing about it is, is it's not even the newspapers building this persona for him. It's literally the people who are in the banks while they're getting robbed who are telling all these stories. Even the fucking hostages that he's taken are telling the newspaper reporters that John Dillinger was the most polite young man that they'd ever seen. And while he's fucking driving down the road with hostages in his car, he's making sure that they're comfortable. He's making sure that they're warm. He's fucking singing songs while he's driving. You know what I'm saying? So it's all these stories. It's not, it's not the media like actually pushing this narrative. It's literally all the people who were witness to this shit. Okay. So. On Thursday, October 26, 1933, the governor of Indiana calls up the National Guard because he's tired of this shit, okay? So they bring in fucking armored cars that are mounted with machine guns on 24-hour duty in Indianapolis in case John fucking Dillinger and his gang try to rob a bank. They are going to be ready, okay? 
Now, all the gang members are are very well aware of their publicity, and uh, especially John Dillinger. John Dillinger used to read like all the stories. He would save press clippings. Um, but the main thing in the gang, like even though they were all aware of this, there were no egos in the gang. Like everybody was on the same level. Everybody was on the same page. There was no struggle for leadership within the gang. A lot of newspapers would reference the gang as the Pierpont gang or the Dillinger gang, but the actual gang itself really didn't fucking care because each man had a role to play. Each man had a job, you know, with all the members, um, they would provide input on planning all these robberies. So no man was more important than the next one. And they were very, uh, they were very democratic and very organized like this. And they were often described as like, it was like military, like they were extremely organized and that's why they were so fucking successful. I mean, they, they only drank on the off hours and they would only drink beer. Um, Pierpont actually had a strict rule that planning and committing a robbery had to be done without alcohol or drugs. You had to be totally sober. Now, if all the members didn't agree or follow the rules, then that member was kicked out. Like, it was plain and simple. It said, this is the way it's going to be, or you're fucking out of here. And, like, when it came down to robbing banks, each member had had an equal say, and they all had to agree. And if one didn't agree, then they didn't rob the bank. Like, it was crazy how organized these guys were. Now, when the guys aren't robbing banks or planning bank robberies, they are having a shitload of fun, okay? They lived quietly. They lived conservative and expensive Chicago apartments. Um, they dressed just like any other respectable businessman. Uh, they didn't draw much attention to themselves. You know, some of them had girlfriends. Some of them had wives. Uh, the attachments were, you know, episodic. You know, it would depend where they were going, whether or not they brought, you know, their significant other with them. Now, for the next three months, the gang went on a crime spree of several bank robberies in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Um, they're always meticulously planned. Uh, the heists often had, you know, some kind of huge theatrical flair, you know, like where John Dillinger would walk into a bank and say, quote, These few dollars you lose here today are going to buy you stories to tell your children and great-grandchildren. This could be one of the big moments in your life. Don't make it your last. End quote. So in late October of 1933, while in a Northside Chicago nightclub, John Dillinger meets a woman named Evelyn Frischette, known as Billy. She was a waitress there. They began a relationship uh, that started on November 20th. Now, she was still married, but John didn't know that she was married until Christmas of 1933. And as she described it, she actually wrote like a big um, editorial for the Chicago uh, newspaper after John's death. And she stated uh, she saw a pair of eyes looking across the room at her and he asked her to dance and uh, she fell in love within minutes. And she when she asked what he did for a living, he simply said, I rob banks. <laughs> and she's just like, OK, fucking sign me up, dude. But they literally fell in love like immediately okay you know she would go on and tell people how he treated her like a lady and she had never really been treated like that before you know he um one of the coolest quotes that i think came out of her relationship with john was she was quoted as saying i loved him not for what he did but for who he was 
And that was fucking awesome because she saw past the bullshit. She saw past everything and she just accepted like who he was as a person as opposed to what the fuck he was doing, you know? And I just, I really find that extremely romantic to be perfectly honest with you. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Billy Frechette, um, she, there's a lot of information out there about her relationship with John. You know, I urge you to look it up. It's honestly like romantic as fuck. Like still a better love story than Twilight. On Wednesday, November 15th, 1933, after contracting ringworm at the, well, he was uh, at the Lima County, or at the Lima Jail in Ohio, uh, Dillinger seeks treatment from a guy named Dr. Charles I. in Chicago. Uh, well, an informant named Arthur McGinnis notifies police, but Dillinger and Frechette uh, pretty much escape that trap. And it's, <laughs> the story behind that escape is, is pretty cool. Apparently, she was the one driving the fucking car, and you know, taking off and shit like that. She was, she was a ride or die chick, okay? On Monday, November 20th, 1933, at 3pm, uh, he robs the American Bank and Trust Company in Racine, Wisconsin, with Pierpont, Makeley, Clark, Hamilton, and a guy named Leslie Homer. Uh, they wounded Sergeant Wilbur Hansen, and uh, the, one of the cashiers was wounded in the arm, guy by the name of H.J. Graham. Uh, their take on that was $27,000. Equivalent today would be $522,000. Now, in about mid-December 1933, Dillinger and uh, Billy, uh, they go and they visit John Sr. at the Mooresville Farm. And then they from there, they drive to Daytona Beach, Florida. Now, in addition, Pierpont and uh, Mary Kinder, if you remember me mentioning her earlier, they head to Daytona as well. Charles Makeley, Mary Kinder's sister Margaret, uh, Russell Clark, and Opal Long also go to Daytona Beach on vacation uh, to get out of Chicago because a guy named Frank Nitty, who's a, a higher up, he's the, he's actually the guy who took over for Al Capone when Al Capone went to prison, uh, he was pissed by Red Hamilton's killing of a Chicago detective around that time frame. So they're, they're like, nah, let's, let's go south and just fucking chill out. We can make it a vacation. Um, and Mary, uh, is trying to see if Margaret would actually see if he would like, you know, Charlie Makeley, who was nicknamed Fat Charlie. Uh, the, obviously the romance didn't take. I thought that was a pretty funny little fact. All three uh, cars took different routes and left at different times just so they weren't all together at the same time because if one got busted, the other ones would break them out. Uh, they were supposed to meet in Nashville, Tennessee before leaving for Florida. Now, uh, on Thursday, December 21st, 1933, Homer Van Meter and John Red Hamilton joined the gang in Daytona and asked for assistance with Chicago mom with a Chicago mob planned bank robbery of an East Chicago bank. Now, Dillinger and Pierpont felt that it might be a, a trick from, uh, from Nitty. So basically he was like, no, cause if, we, if we go up there and we get involved and this is going to be a trap and we're going to end up getting killed by the fucking mob up there. Um, so they actually rejected the offer. They didn't want anything to do with it. Now, Hamilton and Van Meter leave, um, and Pierpont makes it known that Van Meter is not welcome in the gang. Uh, Van Meter, Homer Van Meter, was a pretty fucking vicious dude, and that's not the reputation that they wanted. They didn't want bodies. They didn't want dead bodies. They wanted money, and Homer Van Meter was kind of, uh, you know, 
he would kind of contradict that whole scheme, okay? So on Monday, Christmas Day, 1933, Dillinger has a great Christmas with Billy. Uh, the next day, he sends her uh, with his car a diamond ring a shitload of money, like thousands of dollars in cash, with instructions to go back to the Indian Reservation in uh, Neopit, Wisconsin. I hope that's pronounced right. And basically file for a divorce from her husband and help her family have a great Christmas because they didn't have much money. Um, and she also stopped by Mooresville Farm uh, with gifts to John's family that he had sent as well. Now on Monday, January 15th, 1934, after the gang spent the holidays in Florida, shortly after New Year's, Pierpont decided they should head for Arizona. Uh, police were looking all over the Midwest for him, so they were pretty safe in the South and in the Southwest at this point in time. Um, they had plenty of money to live on for the next few months, uh, so they decided to keep a low profile. Now, on his way west, Dillinger picked up his girlfriend, Billy, and a gang member named Red Hamilton, John Dillinger and Hamilton decided to rob the First National Bank in East Chicago, Indiana. It was basically quick cash to, to fund their trip, okay? Uh, the robbery went very, very badly. Uh, Dillinger walks out of the bank, and he's using vice president of the bank as a, as a shield. Uh, outside waiting is a police officer by the name of William O'Malley, and he yells, and he says, move. You know, he tells the VP to move out of the way real quick because he had an open shot. Now, John Dillinger is shot several times in the chest, but he's wearing a bulletproof vest, right? Now, this there's a little bit of debate on what happens next. Some say that Dillinger just sprayed the machine gun in that direction just to scare him so that he would leave him alone. Uh, and some say that he fired towards his feet, but the ricochets of the bullets uh, were what hit him. And there are some people who say that John Dillinger wasn't even in East Chicago at that time. They say it was uh, different people, but either way, uh, which I'll tell you that other story here in a second, William O'Malley was hit eight times across the body. Like I said, they were possible ricochets. Uh, he was killed. Hamilton was wounded. He was shot in the right hand, which made him lose a finger. He was also shot four times in the groin, okay? Um, they took $20,000, and in today's money, that would be about $390,000. Now, according to Mary Kinder, um, the First National Bank of East Chicago was robbed by John Hamilton, Homer Van Meter, and an un and an unidentified man associated with Babyface Nelson, possibly John Paul Chase, Tommy Carroll, or Eddie Green, and that it was not John Dillinger who was involved in that. Now, the thing about it is, too, which really, really sucks, is that at this point in time, everybody wanted to be robbed by John Dillinger, okay? Dude, it could be a fucking bank six states away, and if the guy looked remotely close to John Dillinger... It was him. Like, there was no question about it. John Dillinger was a fucking celebrity. Everybody knew him. Everybody wanted to be robbed by him because he was a gentleman. He was known as, as the gentleman gangster. So, it's really hard in nailing that down. Like, like I said, there's people who were involved with Dillinger that said he wasn't even there. Literally giving names of the people who actually were involved. And to be honest with you, the Babyface Nelson gang, uh, you know, with Homer Van Meter and even Red Hamilton. Red Hamilton was a pretty hardcore dude himself. 
you know, that would actually be a little bit more likely of a scenario of somebody getting killed. Because if you look at all of the previous bank robberies before that, there was one person wounded in the arm, and that was a cashier. That's fucking it. Like, John Dillinger did not want a body count. He wanted money, and the rest of the gang agreed. Like, Pierpont was very specific on that, too. Because that was just a whole nother fucking mess of problems right there that you had to deal with. So, with the killing of O'Malley, and after the East Chicago robbery, shit starts getting really hot for the John Dillinger gang. And that's also where I'm going to leave you at. Because what? who would I be if I didn't leave you wanting more, okay? So, until next time, see you on the flip side. 